Welcome to the Iowa Idea Podcast. Join host Matt Arnold for in-depth conversations with artists, designers, entrepreneurs, and civic leaders as he explores how they approach their craft and represent a modern version of the Iowa Idea. This podcast tells the stories of Iowa natives, transplants, and friends who demonstrate the Iowa idea in the 21st century. We love these movies. In this episode of the Iowa Idea podcast, I sit down with comedians Trace Ballou and Frank Conniff, who wrote and performed on the Emmy-nominated, Peabody Award-winning TV series Mystery Science Theater 3000. Trace played mad scientist Dr. Clayton Forrester and Crow T. Robot, while Frank played the lovable, bumbling, evil henchman TV's Frank. Today, Frank and Trace continue the tradition of MST3K's style movie riffing live. We discuss their journey into comedy, writing, and acting. I appreciated how Trace and Frank talked about the importance of iteration and collaboration as they honed their craft. Especially when Frank noted he learned slowly at how to be a good comedian. From an innovation perspective, I enjoyed hearing how they've been able to pivot their live show in a time of pandemic. We also talk about the earnestness and authenticity that can be found in bad movies. We also cover their collaboration with Len Peralta. And as my friend Bill would say, I hope you're wearing steel-toed shoes because we're dropping a lot of names in this episode. It was an honor having Trace and Frank join me on the show. I thank them for sharing their time and insights, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Trace and Frank, it is an absolute pleasure to have you here on the IO Idea podcast. Thanks so much for joining me. For our guests, uh, if you don't mind, uh, could you tell me a little bit about yourselves? You want to go first, Frank? Um, okay, and I'm looking forward to hearing about you, Trace. So, uh, but uh, I don't know Frank at all. Uh, this is the first <laughs> we're meeting for the first time on Zoom. But um, uh, I, um, I am mainly known for the work I've done with Trace, which is uh, Mystery Science mm-hmm. Theater 3000, and um, I've uh, I've I've written for several TV shows, um, Invader Zim, Sabrina. Sabrina, the teenage witch. I think I pronounced that correctly. Um, uh, and um, a lot of uh, uh, other shows, uh, totally biased with uh, W. Kamau Bell. Um, and uh, and I write books. I have a new book out, which I'll plug when we when the time comes. I will happily plug it. And um, I'm a comedian. I, I do stand-up comedy, although not these days, obviously. But... Um, and I'm from, I don't know if I mentioned, I'm from New York. I grew up, uh, I live in the Manhattan neighborhood that I grew up in on the uh, Upper East Side. Um, so I, any, I don't know if that's enough. If, if there's anything else you want to know about me, I'd be happy to tell you. No, that's great. And uh, Trace? Uh, my bio reads almost word for word as Frank's does, <laughs> except I didn't grow up in New York. Uh, I'm from Minneapolis, uh, the western suburbs of Minneapolis, and I grew up uh, in just a wonderful environment. Uh, you know, our, my family was very creative, and my mom was a painter, and my dad earned a living. Uh, and uh, in fact, when we were doing Mystery Science Theater, I, I told you earlier before the, the show, uh, I grew up like four miles from where the studio wound up in, in Eden Prairie. 
so it's I've kind of had a charmed life, you know. I'm kind of an idiot, but I've stumbled into <laughs> some really cool uh, opportunities, you know, working with Frank uh, all those years back on Mystery Science Theater, and then we all scampered off to uh, uh, make a living in real show business, and uh, Frank led the way there, and and I followed, and uh, he ignored me every time I called. Frank. <laughs> Uh, but then I, I moved back to the Midwest about 15 years ago and I live in, in the woods and I, he does. I don't like it. Uh, Frank's been here. Frank's I've been, been to his, yeah. he, he, ha, he has a cabin in the woods. It's, 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 it's like what people dream of. It's not very, a Kaczynski very... kind of thing though. You know, when you say cabin in the woods, it either means I lure teenagers to their doom <laughs> or I've got like some manifesto. I, want. I was, I was just going to ask if there's a manifesto in the works. Um, There's always but, one in the works. Yes, it's, he. Yeah, he lives in a beautiful uh, spot by the water, as do I. But the water I live by is the East River. Great. Yeah, and uh, it's one of the things I love about Minneapolis too, is it doesn't take long to get out of town and really feel like you're in in the wilderness. Yeah, but, that's that's so true. In fact, I that's one of the things when I moved from New York to Minneapolis that I noticed right away is you could go 20 minutes out of the city and be in the country, which in New York, you, you know, you have to go like at least an hour and a half, two hours to be in what you would consider a rural area. Um, so yeah, that was, that was kind of amazing to me. But you've got Central Park and, and I think Minneapolis yeah. shares that love of parks, you know, that. Oh yeah. Because we've got some amazing uh, preserved green spaces in the city. Beautiful uh, parks. And one time, uh, I was driving around Minneapolis with our mutual friend, Liz Winstead, who's created The Daily Show. And we all, you know, we all know her from the Minneapolis comedy scene back in the day. And I, I noticed that um, one thing the city planners in Minneapolis did was they made sure that wherever there was a lake, there was a park right up <laughs> against it. Like just part, just you know, and river and the river too, you know, any body of water, and there's a lot of them um, in the Twin Cities. There's always a park that's right there, and it's it's one of the great. Um, but no parking. About. No parking, is, but yeah, that... but plenty of parks, and um, uh, Lake of the Isles is my favorite in Minneapolis. That that's such a gem. That whole yeah. ribbon of uh, waterway is. Uh, People in Minneapolis should get down on their knees and thank someone for that. They, they should. Us? I, no, we did not, <laughs> nothing to do with it. Yeah, it's gorgeous. And um, Frank, I told uh, Trace before we got rolling, I lived in Minneapolis for about 15 years. Oh, uh, wow. So I was um, basically kind of uh, in the uptownish area. Uh, uh -huh. So uh, for a while, I lived right across the street from the Minneapolis Institute of Art. Oh, yeah. Uh, and then was uh, our house was just off of uh, 36 and Colfax before I moved to Iowa City. Oh, so, sure. yeah, just basically step out the door and uh, walk, walk past the Lakewood Cemetery and you're at the <laughs> Chain of Lakes and the Rose yeah. Garden. It's great. Yeah. It's so great. It's a very walkable city. It's a very biking uh, yes. uh, friendly city. Uh, yeah, always, always I was competing with Portland for who's number one. And, and I always you have to give it to Minneapolis because people are cycling in the middle of winter in Minneapolis. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're That's that true. crazy. Uh, it warmed up yesterday and immediately the flip flops come out and you know guys are walking <laughs> around the hardware store and, you know, uh, but it'll get cold again. 
and Frank, you had mentioned too about the uh, about the parks and lakes. So just a, a weird bit of uh, trivia. I remember reading that uh, I saw somebody like dissecting urban planning and and one of the differences about Minneapolis being so uh, friendly and inviting versus uh, Detroit was uh, home home buyers were able to buy all the way up to their waterfront. So in a similar manner, like so Lake of the Isles, Harriet, right? They you have you do have that boundary where you have the public you know pathways, and that's mm-hmm. one of the things that made it a little bit more inviting for everybody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's 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 a really uh, it's it's a great uh, great place. So you uh, you two met in uh, Minneapolis. Uh, was were were you both pursuing comedy careers and mm-hmm. would end up in the same place, or did you meet yeah. each other and then work on comedy? I think I think the first place I, I met Trace was, I believe, at the ha- a place called the Haha Club. It turns uh, out it was for comedy. Uh, <laughs> yeah, who could have thought? guessed? Um, and, uh, and, and um, I actually, and this is a little more background about myself, I actually moved to Minnesota for drug rehab, which is how I ended up there. And, um, and I ended up staying in the city. And uh, the Ha Club was, was non, non-alcoholic. Um, and sometimes when I was on stage, non-entertainment, too. <laughs> so, uh, but uh, um, so so it was just a, a great place uh, to go and do comedy. And, and I saw Trace do stand up there. And I also saw him uh, uh, do improv with people there. And um, and so we basically we met in the Minneapolis Twin Cities uh, stand up comedy scene. And we went on the road a couple of times. They had a to Iowa called, City occasionally. Yes, we did yeah. the spaghetti works in uh, in Iowa, Nebraska and um so, uh, so yeah, that's, that's, that's where we became friends was be- before, uh, even before Trace was on Mystery Science Theater and, and certainly before I was on it. Yeah, it was a great community to be a part of it. Very yeah. exciting. A lot of really cool people uh, came through there during the eighties and still do. Uh, one of the best clubs, uh, uh, the Acme. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Is still, that's probably the premier it's, in the country. I, all the comedians. Top three. All the comedians I know from different parts of the country all covet doing the Acme Comedy uh, Club. I, I never did it. I they, they wouldn't let me. <laughs> I, I middled there. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, and and uh, you had mentioned improv for trades. Were you uh, my my mental default is uh, Brave New Workshop? But were you were you with them or who were you doing improv with? Um, there was before the Ha Ha Club became the Ha Ha Club. It was uh, under a different ownership, and it was called the Comedy Cabaret. And I knew one of the owners uh, was uh, Scott Novotny, and he had uh, been a student teacher in my high school. So I got to know him there. And uh, a couple of years later, after high school, he said, "Hey, I'm going to start this cabaret club." So I think I went to every show. Uh, as an audience member before I got into their improv uh, group and uh, did that until everyone realized you could make more money being a standup uh, than being a group of people. And then everyone went on their own way. But I, I really loved that experience. And I loved, you know, like I said, that, that community back then was so vital mm. to everything I've ever done and people I've known, uh, you know, the greats like Dana Gould came through there and, 
just did magical things uh, yeah, on stage. Yeah. Um, but it was so cool to be part of that. Uh, people, yeah, uh, I'm, I'm friends with the people um, from that comedy community to this day. I'm still friends with them because a lot of them moved to LA and then we hung out when I was living there. And um, yeah, it's just, it's just a, um, a, a treasured time in my life. Even before I was on Mystery Science Theater, just the period where I started doing stand-up in Minneapolis and was going out to the clubs every night and meeting all these people and making all these friends and learning, slow, very slowly learning how to be a good comedian. Um, uh, it, was, it was just a, just, I look back at it as a golden time in my life, even though I know for a fact I was depressed for a lot of the time. <laughs> But, uh, but you were in the right place. Yes, I was. So we uh, make it there. One one of the things about Minneapolis that uh, I think for me, so I, I grew up in Northern Illinois, uh, in, in Rockford, Illinois. Uh, oh yes, no, well. kind of a failed factory town and a, you know, a, a good place to be from. Uh, but <laughs> hey, cheap trick is from there. Absolutely, yeah. The One armed man is from there, and. Then that's it. I think that's it. you and those guys. Uh, and uh, apparently the inventor of Coney sauce. Um, well, and another more Ro Rockford trivia for you. The, uh, uh, the O-ring, the faulty O-ring in the first shuttle disaster was manufactured in Rockford. They, they have that mm. on their sign, I noticed. <laughs> yeah. Our O-rings suck. <laughs> makers of the faulty o-ring that got several people killed it's right there on the side come for the o-ring yeah <laughs> stay for the abandoned factories <laughs> so uh but i remember as a as a kid listening to uh bands like husker du replacements so, mm -hmm. so like minneapolis in the 80s you had this growing comedy scene the music it just sounds from a creative perspective Seems like it, it was a great place to hang out. Am I? I'm just romanticizing it, or no? I don't even. Oh, I don't no, really totally. think it's it's romanticizing. It really was, yeah. and I I wasn't even I wasn't really a part of the music scene there, but uh, I knew people who were, um, and um, it was just a very vibrant. You know, a lot of clubs had um, you know music, and you know First Avenue, and of course Prince, and. Um, uh, and, and all those great bands that were playing there. Um, it, it, it was really um, a great time to be, to be there. Absolutely. Well, and also the art scene too, which I briefly tangentially was associated with and uh, all the ad agencies, the huge agencies pumping right. out a ton of work, given a lot of actors jobs and a lot of writers and, and directors and, uh, it was just a magical creative that's like a comet hit, you know, at, at that time and just spilled its its creative reign over all these people. Uh, and, and like Frank said, we still keep in touch with it's such a, a bonded community that uh, that went through that period of time. It's just uh, it, it's really a treasure. Yeah, I miss I, I miss it uh, quite a bit too because I, I just for me it was a really friendly, supportive community. Yes, very friendly. Uh, yes, Minnesota, uh, Minnesota, Minnesota, yeah. Minnesota nice is an actual thing. You know, it's a thing that it's an expression someone came up with. Minnesota nice, but I think it it's really changed is. to Minnesota disdain now. <laughs> <laughs> 
but uh, yeah, people there are um, uh, very nice. Well, like yeah. Iowa, you know, it's that yeah. that that corridor of the Midwest that uh, Michigan. I would include a lot of our friends uh, out in Los Angeles. We met were from uh, uh, Michigan. Paul Feig, uh, a right. good friend of ours, and, and who and, else can uh, we name drop? Frank? Well, uh, <laughs> Dave, uh, Dave Gruber, Allen, and um, and the Higgins uh, boys, Steve, the Higgins boys, Steve and uh, Dave Higgins. They're all from Iowa. That's where they started. Uh, Dave Higgins actually lives back in Iowa now. Oh, he lives in Des Moines, right? Yeah, yeah, I believe so. Awesome. Uh, question for you guys. So if you, and and I'm sorry, uh, I feel like you, you probably have to go through this a lot when you're talking to folks, but uh, I, was a, I was a big fan of uh, Mystery Science Theater. And uh, when, when I first moved to uh, Minneapolis, also Comedy Central w- was newish and mm-hmm. So just kind of fell in love with the whole, the whole uh, network, but kind of curious about the work you guys were doing. How just, if you don't mind walking me through a little bit, how did the whole show come together from just concept to the idea of riffing on, on these old films? Well, you know, Joel had uh, the initial idea and he and Jim Mallon, I think shared warehouse space in in St. Paul. And uh, Jim was uh, at uh, KTMA, which was, uh, you needed the round antenna to pick it up, to pick the signal up on your television set. It was a UHF station, right? Yeah. Their highest, their most popular show was Andy Griffith, and rightfully so. Rightfully so. I'm, yes. I'm, watching, I'm watching them, those episodes now. It's One of the best. greatest television shows ever. Yes. And then there was us who came on and people called and said, put Andy Griffith back on. Uh, <laughs> My and, antenna's and we, broke. <laughs> yeah. We did uh, like 22 shows there. Uh, J. Elvis Weinstein, Joel Hodgson, and myself. Uh, Kevin Murphy was uh, running all the tech stuff and cameras and all that stuff that we didn't know anything about. And Jim was running around trying to keep us in line and, and kept, kept, kept the show going and, and we were kind of left alone to do it. It was like we did 20 episodes or 22 or something like that, uh, which was really a shakedown cruise of the whole concept of the show. And uh, we, we at that time, we were doing them live where they would show us the film. We would sit in the studio and, and uh, improvise and, the riffs, too. Yeah. Yeah. There was no time for writing, you know. <laughs> So it wasn't scripted and you hadn't been exposed to the movie before? No, we might've looked at it a little bit to see if it was okay. Uh, but we just blatantly stole them out of the library uh, that the station had access to. And uh, that was, you know, we kind of didn't really know what we were doing. We were having fun and there were no rules and uh, riffing just kind of came about because you got three knuckleheads you know, looking at a movie for two hours and you got to say something, you know, you got to fill the time. And over the years that that riffing thing got honed and made into like a real thing, you know, it's like Frank and I are still making a living off of that. That's right. Uh, As are the Riff Tracks guys and uh, the new Mystery Science Theater. It's um, uh, I don't I can't explain it. It's it's uh it's it's a weird thing we've done the the extension of it that you've been doing so you were doing live shows prior to covid 
and now and you're still now you're doing kind of the the Zoom broadcasts. Uh, how how are those different uh, when you were doing the live shows versus uh, doing the recorded shows? Well, the the thing about the Zoom shows is they 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 work very well because for one thing, people who watch Mystery Science Theater. Um, they, they were, you know, they grew up watching us work without us, without an audience, you know, just directly to the camera. So that's something that's just fits very well. And nobody, um, thinks anything weird about it. Uh, but, um, but we love when we, we, when we did cinematic Titanic with Joel and Josh and Mary Jo, um, that's when we really started doing riffing movies as a live experience. And, and then we just realized that this is the most fun way to do it, you know, to do it in front of an audience is just such a great thing. And then when Trace and I started doing it as a duo, we had kind of the same experience where we were just loving um, having the energy of that audience with us. And it, it, it always led to a lot of spontaneity and really, um, fun moments and um and you know and and you know back before covid people at shows would always say to us hey are you ever going to do a digital version you ever going to do it online and we were <laughs> we were like kind of we didn't even kind of know what that was i knew we knew what it was <laughs> yeah. but we we didn't really uh, think too that, hard <laughs> yeah we didn't think that much about it it, it, it we we just love doing the live shows and now we're doing them online and they're they, they've been, thank God, they've been very successful and people are really liking them. And um, uh, we're going to keep doing them. My guess is that um, when all of this is, when we make it through all of this, if we ever get to do live shows again, which I really hope we do, um, my guess is that we'll continue to do the, the online shows as well um, because people, the response has been so overwhelmingly positive to them. Yeah, and it's, it's great to work uh, the material live. Uh, all the shows that we've done uh, through Zoom have been uh, films that we've done dozens of times, just maybe 50 times each live. So we really know where, uh, where to hit the jokes. Uh, but I do miss that, that random element. There's that electricity with an audience where it's somewhat unpredictable to a point and you think of stuff you never thought of uh, right and then stuff you labor on you go this joke this is the joke and it's like no we don't think that was the joke we think you're wrong exactly yeah you, the audience, that's fun too the audience always surprises you by what they yeah. really go for you know um and so we look forward to having that back you know um without an audience it's kind of the, the fun thing, the one fun thing I'll say about without an audience is that it just, um, it encourages me to do even more obscure references because <laughs> I, because I can't hear the laughter anyway. You, you can't I can't hear, hear the laughter that, that wouldn't be there if we did it live. Yeah. Um, so, um, but so it, it is a lot like doing the TV show, you know, yeah, where yeah. you have to fill in more and you get to fill in more yes. because, uh, there's not this, uh, tumultuous unstoppable laughter that's obliterating like two or three minutes worth of jokes right and that that's happened to us live many times where it happened with cinematic titanic and it happens now where you lose some good jokes because the audience is laughing so hard at the previous joke right right because uh, some of the 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 quick work that you guys do 
back and forth as a scene's developing. I, you said if an audience is laughing, you're not going to be able to talk yeah. over them, really. And also, they love it, too, when you screw up a joke <laughs> yeah. and, you, and you say, oh, man, and you mention, you comment that you screwed it up. They love that. And, and also, sometimes, um, it happened more often with Cinematic Titanic, but it's happened with Trace and I a couple of times where there's a technical glitch with the movie. Maybe the sound goes out or something happens. And then we just have to vamp um, and comment on that for a few minutes. And the audience loves that. They go crazy over that. I, I think that's the most dangerous and most fun. I don't encourage it. Oops, yeah. now I just did that. And that's <laughs> dangerous. But, uh, there's a book, uh, uh, the title is great. Uh, Comedy is a Man in Trouble. And I think that's what people love to see is like, okay, you're, you got to scramble and this isn't prepared and we're all part of this. Right. It could go badly. You could, you could crash the car. Uh, and like I said, I don't encourage that, but it's so much fun when it, when it, it, ha I don't even want to say that because that jinx it. Well, they, the this audience, I, I think the audience loves it just if it's re when it's real, they love yes. it. And when it's they think honest, it's real, yeah, yeah. Um, they go for it. And, and, you know, a lot of comedians, um, even their most polished jokes that they've done a million times, part of the um, art of it is making it seem like it's just yeah. coming off the top of your head. And, and people, um, I think a lot of people think that that's comedians are just funny people who think of funny things while they're on the stage. And it just, and if they, if they think you're, if they know you're telling a joke that, that can really hurt the joke if they really know um, uh, that that's what it is. And, and also that's why, like when you used to watch uh, Johnny Carson, he would do really well when he bombed because yeah. he, he'd comment on it. He, he, he'd do a joke. It would get nothing. And then his reaction to that was hysterical. And you, it was kind of like what you hope would happen when you watch the monologue, because it was so good. Yeah, so endearing and, mm -hmm. and just brought you in to that little family for that amount of time. Uh, someone just posted today uh, a five minute clip of Doc Severinsen and Johnny Carson talking about Thanksgiving. Uh -huh. And I have not laughed that hard. I think I needed a laugh today. <laughs> but it is, it's just these two guys bantering back and forth and being yeah. real, like Frank said. Uh, and if, if we can you know, get that back when we go back to live shows. That's something I look forward and, to. And along those lines, I don't know if it's available on YouTube, but I would seek out the clip of Johnny and Ed McMahon when Ed is obviously drunk. That's, that's a really <laughs> yeah. good one. At yes. one point, Johnny says, you're not fooling anybody. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever so see good. Frank uh, Tommy Smothers doing his Johnny Carson impression? No, no, I, I didn't even know he did one. Another one. It was in the final week of the Carson show. And oh, it's, okay. it's golden. It's a great moment. Oh, I'll, I'll have to look for that too. Uh, just that we were talking about some of the, the broadcasts uh, that you're doing. Uh, so just throw it out there in the, in the name of plugs, but I know on the 17th of November, you do have another, uh, you're doing, what is it? The, uh, the brain from Planet Arrows. Thank with, you. I, I didn't. I was a little worried about my pronunciation. There. With um, with with John Agar. Um, the the best thing about the movie is the title. That should tell you a lot. 
how how do you guys select the movies? Uh, I mean, I'm just going Obviously back through not the very past carefully. <laughs> They're so fun, though. Like the Tingler. I mean, that that's another one, right? That you know, right? The, the Tingler is Tingler yeah. was almost above our pay grade. To tell you the <laughs> truth, it's uh, Trace actually got in an argument with a fan who recommended it and said it's public domain. And Trace was like, "No way, that's public domain." And then it turned it's out too it, good. Yeah. It turned out it was public domain. A lot of the films we do are really, you know, they don't like Brain from Planet Arrows, for instance, not particularly famous. B, there are some B movies that are very famous. This isn't one of them. And um, those are the ones we can afford to do because they're public domain. And that has a big, that's a big part in, um, you know, why we uh, do a, a certain thing over another thing. Uh, people online today were saying, hey, did you ever think of riffing like Mannix or Barnaby Jones? And I'm like, we could never <laughs> afford to, or Quincy. Yeah. And I pointed out there's a there's a punk rock episode of Quincy where um, the punk rock, because of punk rock, it kills someone or whatever. <laughs> it's, it's Didn't we not, do that one with Master Pancake, the, the Austin-based riffing did group? Did we do the, the Quincy? I, I think we did the Quincy one. Oh, the, maybe that must be where I saw it then. I yeah, because uh, I, I never watched Quincy, so yeah, it's the one opportunity. But they say, uh, well, why don't you, 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 did you ever think of doing those? And like, I'm like, yeah, we thought of it, but there's no way we're going to because uh it's it's too expensive to get the rights to to do the stuff that we do is either public domain or we can afford the 50 bucks it costs to uh rent to you know license it like leonard glenda was challenging too what's it leonard glenda Glenda was public domain really although (laughs) yeah surprising it it makes it uh more challenging to find these films because we're kind of fishing in these backwaters of the cinema uh, era, you know, and these driftwood pieces come up. And one of my favorite finds was a film called Walk the Dark Street, which is a film noir that no one has ever heard of. And it's uh, Chuck Connors and uh, who's the the other guy? Don Don Ross. Of Dragnet Uh, fame. Yes, he's (laughs) all over Dragnet. Uh, But it it kind of forces us to find these things like... um, uh, what's the other that Neanderthal man, Neanderthal man uh, which yeah, is one we've done on the road a lot. Uh, and people go, why have we never heard of this? And then and they also, see it and they realize. Yeah. And you know, people, a lot of times people will be like, well, wouldn't you love to do like a modern uh, blockbuster bad movie, like a Michael Bay movie or something. And um, and we're like, um, no, we wouldn't prefer to do that because for one thing, these old films that we do from the 50s and 60s, they have an innocence and a sincerity yeah. and an earnestness to them that makes them very suitable for riffing and makes them more fun to spend time with with them. And they're, even though they are like kind of the lowest um, budget things or the, the cheapest things you can find, they're actually our, also our favorite kinds of films to do. Yeah, I was, and and thank you, because I, I was going to ask you about that too, because I feel like uh, when and some of the discussions I've seen with you that there is there's also a, a certain I don't know, amount of reverence that you guys, even though the, these oh, fall yeah. into bad movies, but that that notion where like just 
I don't know, some of the horrible like summer blockbuster movies that people consume versus uh, like Walk the Dark Streets. It's while you're you're still riffing, I feel like there's still a bit of care and treatment and respect in there. I yes, and I absolutely. can't articulate oh, it, yes. but um, we, well, we love these movies. I mean, yeah. we, because we do them on the road multiple times, we have to choose them very carefully. And it's like choosing another, you know, person in the comedy troupe. Uh, it, yeah. it, and so we we have we've started out on a couple films that went nah, these aren't quite the best ones to do live uh and the ones that work the best are these like walk the dark street has this crazy element of it's the most dangerous game times two but nothing happens <laughs> and yeah uh, or, or like glenn or glenda which is actually of a very thoughtful movie about uh the subject matter and we've seen that i counted we've seen that over 50 times live at least and i never get tired of it i i enjoy yeah, watching that every time when when you're getting ready to select a movie how uh, how do you know that you have a, a winner like you're you're going to bring this movie into the troupe for a while well, how, you how do you know, know? I don't think we really know until we do it in front of an audience. So yeah. if, if we do it without an audience from uh, the reaction that we get, um, like for instance, the film that Trace has uh, been talking about, Walk the Dark Street, that was a film he Trace found and he showed it to me and I was on board for doing it, but I really had my doubts about whether it <laughs> yeah. would work um, that well. Um, live because it's you know we we've never gotten a good print of it although the, the one print. the one we did um for our zoom show was was a better was a little bit better but um i think only because we weren't projecting it across a room yeah probably it, yeah it, it had a little more detail um, not any, any but much. it's it's a really bad print and like trey said you know not a lot happens in it um but but i could tell how riffable it was uh, but like I said, I had my doubts. And then we, the first time we did it was at a place called the Voodoo Lounge in Denver. And, and it just went over like gangbusters, you yeah. know? And I was like, this is amazing. You know, I, I never would have predicted. It's like we were talking about before with jokes, how you never can predict what's going to um, uh, go over big. With Same thing with a movie, you know, you, you never know what's really going to work until you take it out and test it. So before we get to that point, it really is just an instinct that we go with, you know. It's something tells you, oh, this film, yeah, it's bad, but it's not quite right. And another one will be like, yeah, this is this is one we can definitely do. Yeah, take take a look at this sequence, uh, like in Neanderthal Man, where the transformation is so horrible. Yeah. <laughs> it's so horrible. Uh, there's al always like one goofy element, like in Tingler. It's a pretty good horror movie. It's a pretty good idea for a, a, a monster. Uh, but there's this relationship that Vincent Price and his wife have that's like from another script. Yeah, it has nothing to do. Even comments about, you know, <laughs> how come we didn't see the first reel of this film? Yeah. And it, yeah, it's like the Tingler. Um, uh, like Trey said, it's it's better than the films we usually do, but but at a certain point, and this is a very important element, at a certain point, it gets very goofy. Yeah. Like the um, this guy is just carrying his wife's corpse around, and you know, 
it kind of doesn't make any sense. And it, it just, it just suddenly they, they, they ratchet up the goofiness and that's very helpful to us. And they're having fun. You can tell that yeah. they're very earnestly making a movie. Vincent Price looks like he's having a great time. And yeah. he's not like, like Ed Wood. I mean, it's an, a very sincere personal film mm -hmm. and at the core and it's, uh, we, we try to find those films with heart. Even Walk the Dark Street, I think, has some heart. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I was able to catch that one on Zoom, and I, I loved it. I think one of the things that was, or I guess two of the things that I thought were great about that film were uh, uh, just some of the pseudo car chases and how those <laughs> were set up and yeah. cars turning around on a street. And and the other seemed to be like, like really big jump cuts. Yes. Uh, like, yeah. <laughs> Wait, how, how do we end up here uh, mm. to your point where sometimes it feels like it, it's moving along, but then all of a sudden, I don't know, maybe, maybe they realize they were running out of film budget time. Cause all of a sudden things are just pretty choppy. Right. Yeah, it's, right. Uh, there's that whole boat sequence where they're on the Avalon and mm -hmm. uh, I was watching a Buster Keaton movie the other day uh, where he's on the ship and he, he's looking for the, the girl and they, they both missing each other. Uh, and I go, I hope that this guy got inspired by Keaton to do that boat sequence. <laughs> Otherwise, there's no reason to, other than they could use the boat. Right. Uh, right. But it, he, he made a promise to himself: when I make it big, I'm yeah, I'm, I'm doing that scene. <laughs> so, uh, question for and and I apologize if my research is off here, but I know Frank, you you do have a new book coming out. No, it's out. It is sorry. It is recently released that we're ruining dystopia for everyone, right? Yeah, uh, you're ruining the dystopia for everyone. It's a collection of uh, linked short stories that depict um, kind of a young adult uh, dy dystopia, um, and it's uh, and and I have to emphasize it's 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 a fun fictional dystopia where people are killed and. And life is horrible. Not like the real life dystopia we're living through. <laughs> Not right the 2020 now. dumpster it's, fire. Uh, it's meant dystopia. to be an escape from the real dystopia to my fictional dystopia. And is it your fifth book? Uh, my sixth. Sixth. Okay. Mm -hmm. You're catching up to Stephen King. <laughs> I don't think that's ever going to happen, but uh, it's, uh, you know, it's something that I, I love doing. And, um, uh, it just gives me something to do. I'm home a lot, you know, yeah. <laughs> I need to find stuff to do. So writing books is one of them. And for all of your books is, uh, Len Ben, uh, the illustrator. Yeah. Len Peralta, uh, he, he illustrates them and, um, he helps me design them and, and get them up and running. He's indispensable to me. And, um, and I've never even considered using another artist because the other thing about Len is he's so dependable. Yes. He literally comes back the next day with almost a fully realized uh, sketch of, of what he's going to do. Um, he's so professional and so talented. Uh, I feel very lucky that I get to have him work on my books. He's, he's done stuff with Trace too. Uh, yeah. yeah gonna, and, and for the Mads as well. Yeah. And for Josh. Yeah. Uh, uh, he's done work on his uh, documentary and mm -hmm. uh, yeah he's he's cross-platform on all the mst so <laughs> and and he's a great guy like frank yeah, said great he's guy. so easy to work with and fun to collaborate with uh len peralta where all your len peralta items are sold <laughs> yeah that's great i wish i could remember 
at, there was some conference I was at years ago that Len was at and he was just producing sketches of what was going on at the conference. And, mm-hmm. and that's how I started following him. So I just, for me, it was a really interesting connection then that I saw that both of you have done work with him. So I was just kind of curious on, on even how you came to that collaboration. Yeah, I think we met, I, I think I, I met him not at a con, although I've been at a lot of cons with him. I think he initially when we were in Cleveland, which is where he lives with Cinematic Titanic, I think he came and interviewed us. For yeah, podcast, we did a maybe. podcast and gave us some drawings. Uh, I, I talked to him at Dragacon about doing a different book mm-hmm. uh, than the kids book that I did. Uh, and I, I never got around to doing that. And Len, <laughs> Len keeps reminding me, we got to do another book. And I'd love to with he's, you know, we, it'd be done in a day the way he works. <laughs> right, right. So, uh, one of the questions I uh, related to some of the themes on a creative side, just for both of you, whether it's whether it's in writing or uh, with stuff you're doing with the Mads, just do you ever feel stuck? And if you do, how do, what do you do to get unstuck? Hmm. Um, I, I think I do uh, feel stuck. I think all of my books start very slowly and, um, um, it's a very, um, you know, at first I'm just kind of like, you know, stumbling around in the dark, trying to see if an idea has potential. And, um, I just, I just kind of sit down and do as much as I can. And 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 in the early stages of a book, it it can be just like you know, a half hour, or an hour, or even less, you know, of just getting something down on paper, and and then I just allow it to to build very slowly. Um, uh, I one of the quotes that has been uh, really helpful to me. In fact, um, it's from a writing book, but. Um, I was asked on a radio show one time, uh, someone asked a bunch of us on there, what's a quote from a book that has really had the most influence on your life? And, um, and I said this and I wasn't, it, it might've sounded glib, but I wasn't joking. It was really true. The quote that has kind of almost changed my life is from the Anne Lamott book, Bird by Bird, where she says, write a shitty first draft. <laughs> and I'm like, Hey, I can do that. <laughs> I can write a shitty first draft. And that kind of just freed me up to just be really bad at first because it always starts off and it's awful and just get a first draft down. And then you can go back and, you know, I'll write 20 to 30 subsequent drafts and, um, and it, hopefully it just gets better each time. How about you, Trace? Uh, I don't write as much as Frank. I'm, I'm more short form, like, just jokes yeah uh, um uh it, it takes me oh it's agonizing for me to write longer things that's why i need people like len peralta to fill in the rest of the page with color uh but i, I i'm uh i i do a lot of visual art too and and uh i'm working on a few things that hopefully I can show people, but then I really, I go, ah, I got my satisfaction out of that. I don't really need to show it to anybody. Um, <laughs> He's like oh. the JD Salinger. Of, of <laughs> There's a warehouse behind me of shit that uh, no one will ever see. <laughs> but, I'm sorry. But, I've, 
I used the word. I used the bad word. But oh, Trace, that... Trace has that. Uh, I think has that visual knack and that visual talent. That that visual that eye for design and stuff like that. That I, I just don't have at all. He he has that gene, but I don't have. I mean, he uh, he built and designed a lot of the mystery science theater sets and stuff. You know, and props and stuff like that. Whereas I was. In that area, I was completely useless. <laughs> I, Did you... I need to build stuff in the 3D world. I need to do kind of go back and forth between words and and stuff. Um, so Trace, did you did you build the robots? Um, the first robots were uh, Joel built them in an overnight, and then they kind of got modified as we were okay. went along. And then when we got money, uh, he took Servo and I took Crow, and we refined them into what they are now or what they were then, or are they now? Uh, it's weird to me that, you know, we went to the junk store to build props and things, and now you can buy the parts online to all those robots. They've replicated all these Tupperware parts. And it, it's what I really love to see, and we get to see this occasionally at conventions, and is people will come up with their own Crow or Servo right. that they've made out of completely different parts. And it still looks great, but it's got more, I think, uh, heart to it and more creative. Uh, I've seen some really great crows uh, at conventions. Yeah. Eyes light up and yeah. they look all cool and much yeah, they better br than they bring, they bring them to our shows too. You know? Yeah. And uh, I, and the, yeah, and they look great. And I've seen um, also people making their own costumes. Uh, yes. Someone at Dragon Con did, um, the severed head from the brain that wouldn't die, where she was <laughs> yeah. literally just a head on a on a plate, and it was it's just amazing. Um, so we see all, all kinds of creative things like that, and then sometimes I'll see people wearing a, uh, a TV's Frank um, uniform, and it's always in better condition than the one I wore on the show because <laughs> the one I wore on the show was the same one that Josh wore <laughs> and they just, well, I think they cleaned it, but I'm not sure. I uh, don't think we did. <laughs> I really don't think we would have spent money on cleaning, <laughs> but it was the same one. And it was the, for the whole time I was there was this, just that one jacket the whole time. We claim not to have any money. <laughs> <laughs> no, sorry. Not the budget. Uh, the uh, and Frank, uh, just going back to uh, uh, Annie Lamont, and I, I didn't know that, but the shitty first draft. What I, I find interesting about that is, uh, for my design teams, my encouragement to my designers that for is, uh, get a shitty first draft out there, uh, sure, just to get the process going. And then I find myself when I'm working with clients, uh, I'll say sacrificial draft. Uh, instead of shitty draft when I'm just getting right. be yeah. before before I, I become more comfortable with the client. I've but. heard, I, I think I heard someone describe it as, for writing at least, uh, uh, the vomit draft. In other words, you just <laughs> you just vomit it out. It's yeah. just, you, you, Get don't it out have, there. you don't have any filter. Nothing is refined or polished. You just get it out on the page. And then when it's there, then it's a mess that you can then go back and clean up. Which I, which is kind of the way I do it, absolutely. So a, a question for both of you, and this is based on uh, also just as I was doing some research, Frank, I came across a line from you in a conversation you had about the the hard part about stand up was the fear of getting in front of people. Uh huh. 
So I'm kind of curious for both of you, you doing comedy and doing stand did both of you have a fear of getting on stage? Uh, or when both of you were younger, did you want to be performers? I I really wanted to be a performer, like for as long as I can remember. I've I've always wanted to be a comedian. And it took me a long time to work up the courage to do it because I was I, I did have a fear of being on stage, but I think I also just had a basic insecurity and a basic lack of faith in my own talent. Um, it took me forever. You know, now I'm in my 60s. I finally feel like I know, like I belong, I, I can do this. I belong here. This was the right thing to do. But um, I kind of always, because um, when I look back, you know, I'm like, why didn't I just go to Catch a Rising Star when I was 18 and start going to open mics and, and, and getting on stage right away, you know, th that would have been the thing to do, but it took me a lot longer than that to get around to doing it. And um, I think it, I had a lot of um, personal issues, personal demons, uh, um, um, addiction and dependency problems that I, uh, I really had to overcome all of that before I could really get started to doing what I really wanted to do. Hey, there's my cat, Millie. Hey, anyway. Millie. <laughs> uh, before I could really get started doing what I, I wanted to do in my life, you know. So that was kind of my story. Thanks, I appreciate that. Trace, how about you? Yeah, you know, our, our family was really uh, fun. We were always trying to make each other laugh and the dinner table was always like bad pun buffet. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, I think I, I, I'm my own worst enemy as far as like allowing myself to, to have fun. Plus I have a, an incredible fear of crowds. Mm -hmm. So when I realized, oh, I can be here being a goofball and the crowd is all over there, it's safe. Uh, but I, for a long time, I would take gigs and then give them away to people because I didn't want to like be there, you know, <laughs> and, and totally insecure uh, around people and, st and still am. It was it was really difficult to go uh, leave my home to go voting uh, because I knew there would be like a lot of people. And it's it's very uh, I get claustrophobic, you know, with with people. So it, um, but. I, I, I don't know if it's just a not caring or I just don't have those sensory, you know, apparatus anymore to realize people are around. So, you know, the filter comes off, but it, it very anxiety, even this with three people and you're not even here. It's, uh, it's frightening. Well, I, I, I do induce a lot of anxiety with, with anybody. So I, I apologize. I think, I think the trace and I are both kind of, um, and I think a lot of performers, I, I think um, a lot of people who are in mystery science theater are very much like this is we're not the, we're not the Sammy Glick kind of show business person. <laughs> you know, we're not like the networkers and the self promoters. And although, you know, I've already done some shameless self promoting on this show for my book, but we're not the kind of just get out there and network and 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 have that relentless ambition to get ahead, which I kind of wish I had, but I've never had it. Trace, you know, isn't like that. I know Mike Nelson was never like that. He was very intro. We're all very introverted. Mary yeah. Jo as well. Like, um, uh, we're, we're just not that kind of like 
aggressive, I'm going to climb my way to the top. You know, I, we're, you know, I'm back home in my room wishing I was at the top, but <laughs> yeah. I'm not like out there. Um, and, 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 you know, I think we've really kind of just let our, our creative endeavors kind of lead the way in terms of how our careers have developed. And, you know, for me, like just being a comedian and just working on my act, that is, you know, that led to me being friends with Mike Nelson and, and, and Mike Nelson, then he got on mystery science theater and then a job opening came and then he, he, you know, he recommended me and I got on that. And then people who know me from what I did there, then I kind of helped me get jobs on other TV shows when I worked on it's, it's, it's really been that kind of um, a path for me. It, it's, it hasn't been like me out there every night, um, you know, glad handling people, like whatever, <laughs> whatever you do to, to, to get to that, you know, exalted show business pinnacle. Um, it's just never been the way of any of us, I think, associated with this show. Yeah, it's and I think we all trail like a severe depression uh, behind us yes. at any given time, uh, which is appropriate that we were all in Minnesota, in the Midwest <laughs> land of yes. helping you. Not I was be. I was the new <laughs> I was the New Yorker on the staff. And yet people when I moved to L.A., everyone just thought I was from Minnesota because I don't have that aggressive kind of New York energy to me. And I, that's why, like, I, that's why I ended up living in Minnesota for almost 10 years, I think, because that vibe kind of was very suitable for me. Like I kind of fit into it uh, very nicely. Yeah, it's something, it's like bringing your uh, your prized cow to the state fair and getting a gold <laughs> ribbon and, and then you just go home, you know? It's like, that was <laughs> right. a good job, good job. And then you go, but just a good job? <laughs> Well, I, I appreciate that, you know, and I think that's something too that I, like I said, I loved in Minneapolis being uh, you know, lots of friends that were creatives, musicians, uh, actors. And one of the things I love about Iowa City is it's still quiet enough in the Midwest mm -hmm. that you, you still work with authors, you still work with musicians. And it might sound strange, but it's you, you get to really just spend time with the ideas. And, yeah. uh, and as I get a little bit older, that's almost as rewarding for me. Uh, I don't know. So I'm kind of curious for you, like now, you know, like decades into your career, do you guys have different measures of success? Because like, we were talking about like, you know, wa wanting it there, but not glad handing, but uh, is there a contentment? I've, I've do you find peace? That, yeah. You know, this gave me an opportunity to meet people I never would have met. My heroes, my comedy heroes. Um, I think I've met, you know, from every genre of thing that I love and that alone is success to me is just, and meeting the nice ones, you know, the ones that are, oh, wow, I, I love you and I loved you forever and you're a cool guy. That's, yeah. um, because the, the fame, I think we were really lucky that we were so under the radar, uh, Except for Frank. Frank gets recognized wherever we go because Frank looks like Frank. <laughs> Frank is our hair. logo. Yeah. But, uh, actually, one time at a Comic-Con, um, someone wanted to take their have their picture taken with me, and they handed their camera to someone standing nearby and said, could you take this picture? And the person they handed the camera to was Joel. So, uh, uh, 
So my hair is like kind of um, um, my calling card. Uh, but, but, you know, we have, uh, Trace and I um, have what is known as cult fame. And it's the best, it really yes. is. Yeah. It's, it's the kind of fame everyone should, should um, strive for because it's the best kind of fame to have because you get to, it's like when Trace um, and I go and do a live show, it's, it's, it's sort of like we're going to fame fantasy camp because <laughs> yeah. it's like for that one night in that one group of people, we're like, we're like famous people that th these people are really excited to meet and these, and, and we're excited to meet them too. And it's, um, and, and so it's like this experience where, wow, I'm a, I'm a star. But then the minute you leave the building, <laughs> the minute you go anywhere else in the world, you're just an anonymous person and you can just go about your life. The next day at the airport, you know, you're, you're just, you have to get online like everybody else. And uh, it's, so it's it really is a fun kind of way um, to be sort of famous to just you know like in New York City although now my wearing my mask I never get recognized that's the reason right it's because of my mask yes yes but uh, um, you know but before all this happened like you know every now and then like someone would recognize me and say they're a big fan and then if I was with someone at a restaurant or something they'd be like where do they know you from it's like you have to explain to your friends why you're famous yeah. with these people you know? we have we have fame with portion control yeah you know, it's just enough exactly oh that's great i want to thank both of you guys so much for joining me on the podcast it uh just an honor uh as, both as a fan and just then you spending time and talking through through the process and joining me here was just fantastic for me i i I hope you don't have uh, nightmares about the past hour. No, it was it was no. really great. It was a thank really you so much fun fun interview. Thank you so much. Yeah, I, nice uh, to meet you. Looking forward to again. Uh, so I'll get the plugs in because awesome. uh, <laughs> it's very Midwest, right? Yeah, it's not a Midwestern thing if you do it yourself. But right. uh, so we have the seventeenth is mm -hmm. uh, the next PM. Yeah, the Mads and the brain the brain from Planet Eros. Uh, go to event eventbrite.com for tickets and you, and you can um, it's a live show, but if you get a ticket before the show, you can, you have the option to download it. If you can't happen to watch it at that moment. Um, and that's eight, eight Eastern, right? Eight Eastern time. Yes. Yep. So adjust Excellent. accordingly. No, that's great. And then uh, uh, Frank, your, your latest book is out as well available yes. where all you're, fine you're, books are sold. Uh, actually, only we're only at Amazon. <laughs> I can't because also because of the pandemic. I you yeah. know I, I I can't I don't have a merch table or anything. So right now it's 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 only available in paperback and on Kindle at uh, Amazon. And uh, so you know you can support me as a writer and support evil at the same time. So that's a really <laughs> that's a really great thing. And. Um, uh, yeah, and all my books are available uh, there as well. Excellent, thanks. And Trace, any any anything to plug? Uh, not really. Things I'm, I'll be working on things that I never show people. So look <laughs> forward to that. <laughs> 
Awesome. Thanks again. Thanks so much. You guys have a fantastic uh, day and uh, hopefully I'll be able to uh, see you on the road in the not too distant future. I hope so. Cool. I hope so. Thanks, Thank Matt. You. Take, Take care. care. Bye-bye.